right. And welcome. We're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, I am your host, Sarah Kaster. I'm in studio with Stefan Hostetter and Dave Hostetter. Indeed. Yes. Uh, and uh, as par uh, usual, I've been pretty unplugged, so I'm super excited to hear what the news is about today. Before we go to Dave for news, and I believe we actually already have Lauren on the line. Uh, we'll go to that in just a second. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who uh, donated or went to the website last week as part of our uh, fall fundraiser. Uh, very appreciated every last penny. Thank you. Um, and now to Dave, who I think is also then going to Lauren. I'm not sure. Do we have Lauren? Sure do. Hello, Lauren. Hey. Uh, all right. So we're going to start with this uh, new Paris Agreement study. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, Already some, we're going to start with great news, I presume. Because the Paris Agreement was a huge success. So I presume that this is going to be great news. Calm down, Stefan. Okay. It's very technical and intriguing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The, um, the 2015 Paris Agreement, Stefan, yes. while a landmark step in the global fight against climate change, takes a so-called bottom-up approach, which means that there is no universally accepted notion of equity. So the nations in the agreement are allowed to define for themselves their fair share. The result of this is that, if trends continue, we will collectively fail to meet the Paris Agreement target of staying below 2 degrees Celsius of global warming, which is a very dangerous thing for the future of the planet. It is possible that new economic incentives like carbon and renewable energy markets, which can create growth while reducing emissions and mutually benefit the countries involved, as well as the falling costs of green tech, could make equity less important, since fighting climate change would therefore be an economic benefit rather than a sacrifice. As it stands, however, current contributions are not enough, and countries will have to begin committing to more ambitious targets. Now, a new study published this month in Nature Communications measures the results of these nationally determined contributions against top-down warming thresholds to provide an assessment of the relative warming impact of each nation's approach. A previous attempt by the study's lead author to develop an objective equity measure has been critiqued on the grounds that it favors wealthier countries whose pledges, quote, amount to fewer tons of mitigated emissions than developing countries. The critique also noted, quote, when reflecting on the relative fairness of countries' pledges and actions, the role of scholarly analysis and quantification is to help clarify the ethical underpinnings and consequences of the choices facing society. It is emphatically not to make those normative choices. It is arguable that this new study falls into the same trap since similar economies and less de since smaller economies and less developed nations are being held to a similar standard as countries whose carbon emissions have been causing global warming uh, for well over a century. Big consumers like certain European countries also appear to be doing better by this metric simply because the carbon footprint is measured on the production rather than the, than, than the consumption side. So the avocados that are eaten by the British are counted against the Chileans. As the study notes, quote, most of the very ambitious contributions are from smaller developing countries. And, quote, a common definition of equity is unlikely to be adopted since countries generally tend to support interpretations of distributive justice that best serve their self-interest and justify their negotiating positions. The study tries to overcome this bias by assessing the impact of the least ambitious standards that each country sets for itself in order to weigh those differing interpretations of the Paris Agreement against one another. This allows the authors to conclude that we need to formally and collectively commit to a 1.4 degrees Celsius threshold in order to achieve the 2 degrees Celsius. We can also use the study to look ourselves in the mirror, since it concludes that Canada's policies, 
if adopted globally, would cause over 4 degrees Celsius of global warming by 2100. Australia's would cause 4.4 degrees, the U.S. would cause 4, the EU would cause uh, over 3 degrees Celsius, and Russia and China would also cause over 5 degrees Celsius. The moderately safe threshold is 1.5 degrees. The study is meant to help inform climate negotiations over the next two years. Since countries tend to measure their contributions against other countries rather than what they're actually achieving domestically, the, the study also helps, hopes to allow countries to assess their ambition and reconsider how they are perceived globally. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that was, I guess, uh, middling. Uh, it wasn't, it, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say it was the most depressing story we'll have, uh, have all day, but uh, it was there. Mm. Okay. Um, there's, I, I love the, uh, the, what's, part of what makes Trump on all the blustering about the Paris Agreement so ridiculous is the, is this fact, right? Is the fact that each country gets to decide what is fair for them. Mm. Um, and, and so the idea of pulling out of an entirely, of, of a thing that literally Trump could say, like, actually, I think fair is raising emissions by 10%. That's actually Just declare a victory is. and go home. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is the most human thing ever. We're going to succeed our way into Armageddon. You know, we're going to be constantly <laughs> telling everyone that we are that we are doing a great job, and we'll keep patting ourselves on the back until it's five degrees warming. Um, but anyways, I want to get Lauren's thoughts on this first. Lauren, so do you? Um, yeah. So when I was reading these pieces, um, it sort of reminded me again that like one of the things that we hammer on all the time is that Canada's um, NDCs or, or sort of the targets they submitted to the Paris Agreement weren't ambitious enough, and obviously like weren't keeping weren't keeping us in line with the sort of two-degree threshold that Paris had established. Um, we all know that, but it's sort of what, what I had sort of forgotten is that um, every few years, every five years, starting in 2018, um, uh, all the participatory countries were coming together to do a global stock take, basically looking at where their NDCs were getting them um, and agreeing to ratchet them up every, every couple of years to ratchet up the ambition. So it was always sort of built into the mechanism that our NDCs were going to get more ambitious. Um, and sort of what this what this reminded me of um, is that Canada is not in, in a position to ratchet up our targets right now. Um, it's not like Catherine McKenna came out in 2015 and said, okay, we're sticking with Harper's targets, but in a few years when it's time to, to increase our ambition, like, like we're going to be able to do that because all have been greasing the wheels back in Canada. All have been preparing people for that sort of political shift. All have been getting people ready economically and just sort of like in civil discourse. And, and that hasn't been happening. So if, if she has any intention of coming out in the next couple of years and saying, hey, we have to amp up our, our ambition here, and that means X, Y, Z, that means we're going to have to change our carbon pricing, that means we're going to have to shift things in the economy. Like, like She hasn't been preparing anybody for that rude awakening. She's been, if anything, sort of lessening the impact in the last couple of years and really patting herself and other Canadians on the back and saying, we're doing our part. It's all great so far, and 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 to a degree uh, lessening the intensity of, of our current carbon price in in certain situations. So I I don't know I I she's kind of really failed in in a lot of ways the last few years, and I know we know that, but this just really drove it home for me this morning. Like she hasn't even done her job when it comes to shifting discourse and greasing those wheels, so that we can ratchet up ambition because. We're not in a political position to do that right now, nor are we in a civil position to do that right now. Nobody's prepared for that. 
So, yeah. I don't, does that make sense? I feel like I was just rambling. I don't know. No, I think that, that, that totally makes sense. I, I think that is indicative. I, I think the liberal response would be, but a carbon, price on carbon, um, which, you know, they've they've pushed so far off that it will be just in time for the uh, for the next election. Um, and obviously, it's, it's, it's going to be such a low floor that action will be happening. But that I think it's an interesting sort of, it'll be interesting to see you just get a price on carbon. The chance they're going to ratchet that up in one year later is almost nil. Right, like the 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 chance they're they're not going to find a way to do this twice, uh, do this so quickly. No, and, yeah, and like that's the thing. It's like obviously we know built into the carbon price is that is that that price is going to increase by by a, a dozen cents or whatever every few years. But even when it even the increases that are currently accounted for and are sort of like we're we're on a trajectory for certain increases, they don't keep us in line with our current NDC, let alone a ratcheted up NDC. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, n- n- nothing nothing adds up within the Canadian context. Right now, I, I, I can't speak to other countries and, and their ability to ratchet up sort of where they're at politically, but at least Canada, obviously, it's, it's written down in this article, but just sort of when you dig into it a little bit more within our specific context, we're not in a position to ratchet up yet. Yeah, and yeah, and I think the UK is totally, uh, you know, moving forward and not in disarray at all. I think they're, uh, I think they're just <laughs> right despite in the, the fact that they're massively in disarray. <laughs> exactly, yeah, just the fact that they're trying to, you know, you know, rip themselves apart. I think they're ready to take on an ambitious uh, task. I think that's that's exactly how I think I'm reading that one. Um, but no, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I think when you look at the local context, there are very few places that seem to be going somewhere. But Sarah, you have a bunch of it. Yeah, no, just um, I, I've been trying to be good this week because I, I really, na- just really train wreck. Uh, cut off Lauren last week, so I'm trying to behave myself. So two quick things that I've been thinking about. So one of them is, right, just back to what uh, David was saying, just really quickly, uh, the problem with pure democracy uh, is two wolf and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, right? Pure democracy only works when you have totally equitable power and perfect information, right? So that's why in the real democracies, in effective democracies, we have things that offset majority rule, right? So you can't just say, well, 60% of us want to take 40% of your guys' stuff, right? right? So that's why, that's why that doesn't work. So that's why uh, voluntary targets don't work because they're two wolf and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Uh, and the the uh, you know what I forgot my second point. I'm not going to take any okay. more time. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I, to, to sort of hammer home on on Lauren's point about how far away from a national discourse we are, uh, I want to I want to briefly jump into Alberta politics for a brief second, uh, and then I will leave it again because it's terrifying. Um, which is that uh, earlier I believe it was earlier this week there was a moment in the legislature um, that that sort of spoke to me about um, spoke to me about where we're at, which was Rachel Notley going after uh, Jason Kenney. Uh, and and you, you would think that the progressive uh, leader of Alberta would be coming up Jason Kenney for, I don't know, maybe being against the carbon tax or, or uh, letting basically betting on runaway climate change. But instead, uh, the, the line of attack was that, that that Jason Kenney had a staffer, I believe, or maybe a, maybe another person within the party, the UCP party, um, who had sort of voiced support for Trump uh, around the time when Trump was saying uh, was thanking everyone for uh, was thanking Saudi Arabia specifically uh, for reduce for the for low price on oil, uh, and how that was like a tax break for everybody, um, and of course because we covered recently. Um, the Canadian, the, the 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 price, uh, the depleted price on oil coming from Canada is is crushing Alberta right now. 
Um, and, 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 and furthermore, the, the 40% of oil comes, American oil comes from Canada in comparison to 11% from Saudi Arabia. So not only was this Trump basically using a, using, using oil prices as a way to like shine up, uh, a country that is currently, uh, you know, still looking bad because they, you know, murdered a journalist in another country, um, and continue to bomb Yemen. Um, but, but like, not only did he use that as like sort of a crude political ploy, uh, it, he also, of course, you know, fully misunderstood where American oil comes from. But anyways, the, the attack that, 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 um, that, that was being levied was basically like, are you not supporting, you're not supporting, uh, you're not supporting Alberta enough by supporting high prices on oil, which is a, just a, just a completely unreasonable way of thinking about things. Like there should, like. The price of commodities should not be a political position, and so, like that is that like a in a in a any world in which a quote unquote free market reigns, the price of commodities should be entirely separate from any political piece of this, uh, and and so to come back, so to so we are now in a world right now where apparently the number one issue in Alberta is the price of a commodity that we desperately all need to stop using, um, and some people think it should be higher, and some people think it should be lower, and. That's apparently the that like that is apparently the, the argument we're going to have until until we hit five degrees warming is whether or not it is re- what the price of the thing that we're all is all killing us should be. Well, and never mind people screaming about free markets, free markets, free markets, unless the oil industry is in trouble, and then <laughs> communism, communism, protect the industry. <laughs> well, it, that, that, yeah, that's the thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, Lauren, you got any thoughts? Oh, whoa. <laughs> I know. I just like, hey, this other entirely, non the seductive on sort of the, on the Paris Agreement or, or, or where we're at in the story. Um, honestly, the only thing I've been thinking about the last few minutes, and, and I've said it so many times, I feel like listeners are going to be sick of hearing it, but like, the government's not going to save us. The Paris Agreement isn't going to save us. The only thing that's going to save us is like a, a paradigm shift and like a systemic overhaul and, and revolution. So, yeah. Like, well, get stoked for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh, sorry. I just remembered what my second point was, and it was it was also to back you up a second time, Lauren. So I wanted, I wanted to make sure that I did that. So, um, uh, uh, so no, I, I really wanted to double down on what you were the last thing you were saying, uh, which was uh, in the previous section, which was just that uh, I, I really liked what you said about um, like priming people, and it's absolutely right, right? Because the the liberals' t- uh, tone since the ele- the tone in the election was, hey, one of the things you need to elect us for was so that we can take climate change seriously, and since then they've been saying hey, look how good progress we're doing on climate change, right? So the messaging is, it was bad, now it's good. So how do you go mm-hmm. from it's good now to we now have all this stuff we have to do, right? Like they're, they're totally screwing themselves over in, in messaging because then when you do actually go to do that extreme stuff, so assuming you are going to, which you have to, you now have to tell people, hey, we we're lying to you or, hey, it turns out, right? Like you have to explain why you were saying this was good enough for six years and then now all of a sudden you're making these massive changes, Right. So they're actually to go even further than what you were saying. I, I think they're actually making it harder to do that. Uh, yeah. Actively no, harder by by telling everyone that we're great where we are now. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. It's not like they've spent the last three years. I can't believe they've only been in power for three years. <laughs> but it's not like they've they've spent the last three years launching like huge, huge ad or like communications campaigns talking to Canadians about about all of these things that were all of these changes that are going to need to happen, all these shifts that are going to need to happen and really getting people acquainted with the idea that like, yeah, your life probably is going to change a little bit because it's going to have to. They've been spending the last three years with PR campaigns, patting themselves on the back and being like, Hey, don't worry guys, we've got it covered. And and you're right. It, it was entirely the wrong sort of, it, it, 
it was the wrong plan to, to follow through on because, yeah, to it's like telling your mom, hey, I've got that project handled. Don't worry about it when you're like 15 and in high school. And then on the last day before the assignment's due, turning up and being like, mom, I need help to finish my project. Like it's, <laughs> it's just not going to work. Nobody's going to have any sympathy for you. People are going to be pissed that you haven't been doing your job these last few years. I just really wanted you to like me, so I was telling you it was done. But now it's not, so you have to like drop everything and help me. Well, well that, exactly. That, yeah, and that, that like this is like that's the classic liberal thing to do in some ways, right? It was like they really ran on we are going to fundamentally change how Canadian society works. And then, and then they don't, but then they tell everyone they did. Well, 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 well yeah, they basically said, oh, wait, we didn't need to, like, you know, like, they literally ran on a, on a, we will have, this is the last election under first past the post, we will have massive climate action, all of these things will happen. And they basically got in and they were like, well, what if we just, like, sort of half-undid some of the things that Harper did and then just ride it out for four years? <laughs> Um, and then buy a pipeline. Maybe that's the move we'll make. Um, and like it, it, it's it's it truly does feel like the the question of of how we're going to switch the like I f- we've talked about this idea of this mass mobilization being necessary for so long, and I feel like at this point everyone's just waiting for that to tip, and everyone's wondering what the tipping point will be. But maybe. Like maybe the tipping, like the concern is that the tipping point will end up being, you know, like like the tipping point will be something so destructive that we won't be able to then react, right? The tipping, the tipping point is, you know, the jet streams change directions. Uh, we'll be so busy dealing with an entirely new weather system that we don't understand that that we won't have the ability to be doing this, yeah. right? And, and like the fact that the fact that on my walk here there is literally a plane flying in circles around Toronto right now, advertising Amazon's Black Friday deal, which is like a, a made up holiday, a made up capitalist holiday of a different country, uh, which has no real bearing in our in our this entire country. It, um, and and uh, and how are we going to pull that off? Is it is an entire question that I like. Like how, how? What world in which? You, how quickly do you go from plane flying around Toronto, advertise like burning carbon, advertising mass consumption, uh, to nobody needs. To nobody needs. Yeah. To immediate response. Like how quickly is that transition going to happen? Right. I don't know. Um, but I, we're running. We're running out of time. It's uh, it's eleven twenty. So uh, so Lauren, if you have any last thoughts, go ahead. And if not, we'll throw a music break. Yeah, go into the break. All right. Thanks, Lauren. Bye. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, perhaps on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, uh, international radio partners, uh, or you could be listening on the podcast, which means that we like you 0.01% more just because then we can track you and it's fun. Mm. Numbers. Uh, That's my job. Dave's job, however, is to actually read the news. What's going on, Dave? Well, what's going on is that the sun is streaming beautifully into the studio as I've never seen it before. Well, that is a... a, I didn't realize this time of year was so gorgeous in here. Yeah, there you go. I I missed my cue. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I like the brief moment of positivity before we go back into the the doldrums. We're going to talk about crabs. All right, well, let's do it. Commercial uh, commercial fisheries are getting in on the climate litigation trend as the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations, representing uh, California crab fishermen, are suing 30 fossil fuel companies claiming that their industry is at risk due to climate change. Uh, 
The plaintiffs are demanding that oil interests pay for the damages as well as the changes necessary to sustain crab fishing in the coming years, with one plaintiff stating, quote, We just about can't make a living fishing crabs anymore. I'd like to see the industry that caused this take responsibility for that. He also stated, quote, The last three years have been really hard. Our community came together and held a fish fry to help our crew members, but fish fries and disaster relief are no solution to these closures we're now seeing year after year after year. The suit, taken against Chevron, Exxon, BP, Shell, and 26 other companies, represents the first action taken against fossil fuel companies by a private industry organization. Massive algae blooms, here said to be caused by warming waters, but in other places also caused by fertilizer runoff, have shortened the fishing season by causing a dangerous neurotoxin to build up in the crab's organs. Inside Climate News reports, quote, Earlier this month, the California Department of Public Health issued a warning not to eat the internal organs of the Dungeness crab from the Bodega Bay or Russian River areas because of high levels of domoic acid. The suit accuses the companies of negligence, creating a nuisance, and knowingly selling a defective product while hiding those defects from its consumers. The suit reads, quote, Defendants have known for nearly 50 years that greenhouse gas pollution from their fossil fuel products has a significant impact on Earth's climate, including a warming of the oceans. Instead of working to reduce the use and combustion of fossil fuel products, lower the rate of greenhouse gas emissions, minimize the damage associated with continued high use and combustion of such products, and ease the transition to a lower carbon economy, defendants concealed the dangers, sought to undermine public support for greenhouse gas regulation, and engaged in massive campaigns to promote the ever-increasing use of their products at ever greater volumes. The plaintiff's injuries derive from rising ocean temperatures in the Pacific Ocean generally and periodic extreme marine heat waves, the results of anthropogenic ocean warming caused by the foreseeable and intended use of defendants' products. Regarding previous lawsuits that have been defeated in court, Chevron's vice president has stated, quote, Tackling the difficult international policy issues of climate change requires honest and constructive discussion. Using lawsuits to vilify the men and women who provide the energy we all need is neither honest nor constructive. The executive director of the group that filed the suit stated, quote, We're taking a stand for the captains and crew, their families, and the business owners that support the fleet. The fossil fuel companies named in our lawsuit knowingly caused harm, and they need to be held accountable. We are seeking to implement measures at the fossil fuel industry's expense that will help crabbers adapt to a world in which domoic acid flare-ups will be increasingly common and also help those crabbers who suffer financial losses as a result. So I love, and uh, love is a, uh, in a particular way, the quote from Chevron's vice president in the story. <coughs> oh, it is, I was also going uh, to say something about that. Uh, it is, it is bo- so funny um, in many ways. The, the first way is Chevron has a long history of not liking lawsuits. Uh, for those of you who don't know, to Google, be fair, who does? Just to be fair. Uh, but I would point out that Chevron specifically has, Chevron has such a long history of not, uh, not liking lawsuits that Chevron, if you Google Chevron Ecuador, the first hit is a page on their website explaining why they are not, why they are not still paying Ecuador for the oil spill that they caused. Mm. Uh, it is the first hit. It is not even, there's there's no, it is literally the first thing they've clearly paid for being the top spot, in case you were wondering. Um, 
how much they are putting into not paying Ecuador for the massive spill that they did like 25 years ago, to which the Ecuadorian Supreme Court, to my knowledge, uh, forced uh, ordered them to pay, which they then just were like, la la, we're not in Ecuador, we're not going to pay you, and then changed their name. Hey, Stefan, how's your day going? I didn't steal your cookie. Yeah, exactly. Well, not only did I not steal the cookie, I made it a page saying <laughs> Stefan didn't steal Saren's cookie yeah. on the web. If you Google Saren cookie, that's actually what 12 PhDs agree. Yeah. Uh, exactly. That yeah. Stefan was nowhere near the cookie. At the <laughs> I time. just don't even know how I could have yeah. stolen the cookie. Never mind that all of them work for uh, our company. Exactly. Um, but but seriously, like this is this is like Chevron has shown such overwhelming and consistent um, lack of interest in especially international lawsuits uh, from other countries that it does not surprise me that this is another that the, that they also are sort of poo pooing this one, despite the fact that the actual claim is a pretty good like that the the, the, the that specific uh, quote about the suits and defendants having fit for fit known fifty years is a pretty good encapsulation actually of what the what the oil companies have done. Like that is a rel- that is actually quite a strong and well-worded and tight description of you knew about this, you went ahead and, di- and and did a bunch of things about it anyways, and then you caught and th- and then and then are refusing to do anything about it. Like it is a ki- it's you can take that almost description exactly and put it on other things and see where where those things were stopped, right? Like that rough that rough description, if you just change a couple words, becomes smoking. That same description becomes asbestos. The you proud know, men like, and women who were employed uh, raising tobacco, Stefan, well, ex- do you hate them? Well, ex- ex- you you know. vilify the men and women that create the recreational smoking devices we all need. Exactly, yeah. You know, and, 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 and this is, you know, this is... And, and you know, many of these companies are still using that kind of that kind of rhetoric to to, to stamp this down. Um, and so it's, I'll be interested to see how this goes. Uh, international lawsuits are really difficult. Um, it like lawsuits that are sort of over jurisdictions because who has power and, and how that works is difficult. I will say that it coming from another company is probably a little bit will will benefit them probably in some ways because there are some more ways to deal with that kind of litigation. Um, but still, like the like, I would be. You know, I would be blown away if if this if this got too far, if only just because of how much more money these companies have than than the commercial fishery industry. You know, like like the crab fishery industry, uh, as may, people may not know, is not as big as the as the oil and gas industry. Mm. Uh, they are slightly they are slightly smaller in size. Uh, big crab uh, does not does not elucidate any idea except that a large animal rather than in the same way big oil does. However, it does change. Uh, I, I I don't know if this will have any legal uh, tread on mm. it, uh, 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 but. The idea that, like, is essentially part of it is like, hey, the public good is sort of this amorphous concept, whereas the jobs that are at risk from the company's argument are tangible things. Right. So in this case, there are tangible jobs versus tangible jobs, and I do think that changes the math in the head of uh, a judge. Uh, That's not a legal opinion, obviously, uh, but I would think it would have to. Yeah, well, but I would be interested to know, like... What per, how many days of profits would these twenty nine companies need to funnel into this into the scrap industry to basically buy them off? Um, you know, like there's a, a level of which, uh, you know, you like if they win the suit and they pay these fishermen out, that's great, but the water will still be as hot. You know, like like I I would be I would be I I don't think that this I don't think the solution to uh, 
to this pro to the sort of overwhelming societal shift is going to become from suing these companies. I, I think that can help, and I think everyone should do it. Uh, like you know, who has a legal binding? I'm not saying everyone should just randomly sue them. I'm not not supporting frivolous lawsuits here, but I, I do think, and I think holding these people to account is important. But I do think that this is a job for government, uh, and so we actually need the government to step up. Uh, and that, to me, is the is remains still the overarching way that this is going to get solved, rather than these sort of many different lawsuits that are coming at these companies. I actually disagree. If you have the money to throw away, by all means, <laughs> sue everyone and anyone. Um, Very American gum, of you. Gum the works up as much as possible. <laughs> well, because they're not playing fair, so we why should we play fair? A and B, uh, it's to the death. Mm-hmm quite literally, of all life on Earth. So really, you're doing it for their own good, which is an argument they love to use, as much as I don't like the sound of it. It's for their own good. They're being childish, and they can't see the bigger picture. Like, this is the condescension, right, that usually comes from these types of people, except that they're actually doing it. These are people, they're trapped in their little bubbles, they don't have anything going on, and they can't take care of themselves, so they need someone to look after them. And the state's going to come in and help them out, because they're little babies, and they can't, they don't don't know how to to be adults, and, and make responsible decisions uh, like constructive members of society. They just see things as my benefit or not my benefit. And those types of people should not have power. They should be in jail. Well, they, 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 only if the jail seems like in this maybe. I'm allowed my opinion. Right. There was a disclaimer at the beginning of the show. That's Stephen. true. You are allowed I am allowed. Opinions. This is a personal opinion. <laughs> okay. Jail. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what else, where else they're drilling. The, um, first attempt to build an oil drilling operation in the U.S. Arctic, Stefan, called the Liberty Project, is having to delay its operations due to global warming, as there is not enough sea ice for Texas-based Hillcorp Energy to build the gravel platform needed to establish a rig. The season for sea ice that connects to the land in the way needed for the gravel island has shrunk by over seven weeks uh, since the 70s, meaning construction will take longer and is now set to start in 2020, with the aim of extracting 150 million barrels over two decades. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the globe, and last winter was particularly warm for the region. The U.S. has opened up almost all federal waters to drilling under Trump Trump in what uh, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has called a strategy, quote, of American energy dominance. It is Trump's administration that has approved the Liberty Project, but this particular application predates Trump, having gotten in just before Obama put a ban on new Arctic drilling. The lack of ice may also cause bigger waves, which would then require bigger boats and therefore dredging out the land underneath, since the water is shallow in the region. Land, which is already subject to erosion associated with climate change. The human mind is here presenting a disastrous feedback loop of its own, since environmental degradation may cause us to degrade the environment more and more as it becomes harder and harder to maintain our fossil fuel status quo. Indeed, as NPR reports, quote, Along with all these challenges, researcher Andy Mahoney points out that the, cl- that the warming climate may also create new opportunities. He says the increasing retreat of sea ice around the Arctic is opening up possible new areas for oil exploration and drilling. Kristen Monsell, the ocean, the ocean legal director with the Center for Biological Diversity, said, quote, opening the Arctic to offshore drilling is a disaster waiting to happen. This project sets us down on a dangerous path of destroying the Arctic. An oil spill in the Arctic would be impossible to clean up, and the region is already stressed by climate change. 
We'll keep fighting this project and any new ones that follow. We won't passively watch the oil industry and this inept administration harm Arctic wildlife and leave a legacy of climate chaos. She did not go so far as to say that our leaders are criminally insane. I this is this is <laughs> I, I didn't fully Can anticipate I? I didn't fully anticipate a story that that th- that would actually make me scream internally as much as this. I story. saw it. I was. <laughs> I, I, it wasn't as I, internal I, as you thought. I know. Yeah, it was not. I, I'm very. I have a terrible poker face. Yeah. It's like this is this is this is perhaps the most dystopian story that we have covered in a while, and that is saying something. Mm-hmm. Like this is it's. They called it the Liberty Project. A, <laughs> a. That is already bad. And oh, like, wh- who's Liberty? What are you talking about? Th- like, Liberty Project sounds like a another euphemism for another war that they're trying to create. Like, this is what is, and then in American energy dominance, this is the same language they basically used when they invaded Iraq. Yeah. Like, this is, and, and it is similarly disastrous. Um, the idea that, like, every part of it, it kept getting worse. Every every new line <laughs> somehow made this story more angering. There, there's a there's a trick I've been learning in my school recently about how to create like filters for websites and stuff. I won't get into details. The point is, is that I could, if you wished, create something that you'd have to download onto your browser, but it would change every instance of the word uh, liberty to I'm an idiot or something. <laughs> like, you can just you can just do word replacement, and it right. can be very entertaining. Like like the. the <laughs> You would think, you would think that the fact that we're losing so much ice that you cannot create a, you can't build this, uh, and that the lack of ice will then mean you theoretically have to dig deeper trenches to get your boats in would be enough of an indication that maybe this is a bad idea. What but, do you mean you don't want to trench under Toronto, Stefan? Do you hate the trenching industry? <laughs> like, the big trench is big really trench. a trench. <laughs> like, but like the, the number of uh, the number of pieces here of 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 like oh I really want to build this 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 thing that I know causes that I know causes the, the same problem. Um, I want to build another oil rig, uh, and then you're like oh wait I can't do it because of the problem that it creates is now too bad. And your thought process is not maybe I shouldn't do this. The thought process is oh oh this opens up other places where we could do this. This is a great idea. What if we just melted the entire world and then we could and then and then everywhere is open for drilling. Like how. The, 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 the accusing people of slippery slope arguments is a is almost a fallacy in itself, right? Like I, 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 I it's it's not a fallacy. You shouldn't start. You shouldn't diet, Stefan, because you'll uh, eventually just stop eating food altogether and die. Well, exactly. Like there's people often use the accusation of a slippery slope argument uh, as a way to dismiss valid arguments. Mm-hmm. However. I said, can't argue against what you're proposing, so I'm going to invent something else to argue against, and then propose that there are con- that there are necessary consequences of one another. Yeah, yeah. But, but the question, I think, the question, when does it stop, is a reasonable question to be asked at some point. Yes, there's an answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. Often we have answers to the question, like, oh yeah, when we're under two degrees warming, that's when it stops. That's like that's that's for environmentalists, it's like it stops when we are when we're currently doing can persist in perpetuity or even for the next fifty years. That's sort of for environmentalists is usually where it's but something like this it's like truly if if your if your answer to global warming uh it, it causing your issues for your arctic drilling of the of oil which causes global warming what is the next what's the next step like what it, what, what are we doing here and 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 and, and we, we, to harken back to the to the paris agreement you know the drilling of this is 
like so let's let's in this weird thought experiment of where the of the the drilling would end up being covered under the Paris agreement but the oil would would, would the actual downstream of the oil itself would not and so like in this weird world, as long as you're drilling in international waters, suddenly that emissions doesn't exist at all. And, and then we all can continue waiting for more and more international waters to become uh, for ice to melt. And then we can and then we can do this. Right. Like th- this is this this is American land, but the, the, but or water. But this is like territory, territory. There you go. Uh, and 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 still it's just there's just so many pieces here that are that are terrifying me. You know, like the idea that <laughs> the idea that our solution to solution to pollution is dilution, Stefan. <laughs> but more pollution, yeah, yeah. Like, like, and, and like this more pollution just spread it around. Yeah, and like you know, in the, the number of stories that we hear, like the the thing we always go back to in 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 climate change is like we have to stop using polar bears dying as the example of climate change, and yet now we're not just under dying; we're covering them in oil and dying. You know, it's like. This is a. It's as if, as if we're doubling down on on different ridiculous. It's like it's going to take a a a a a polar bear who is already hungry, covered in oil, on fire, running through a town in Alaska before people take climate change seriously. Like this is the Singing new in Spanish. Yeah, this, this is the, this is the new this is the new this is the new uh, image that will that will cause climate change is the is the oil spill polar bear uh, who is so hungry he's entered he's entered the, the waters and maybe yeah, then people we'll have do short attention spans. Maybe it should be the breakdown. Polar bear. Yeah, there we go. The, well, break the polar bear has to keep coming back every bear. every every week to remind people that he's still there. Right. Um, but like, wow. Okay. I'm. I, I will. We'll go to music break because I need a second to decompress because <laughs> of how frustrating this Liberty Project is. And everyone should. And Ryan Zicky should be remembered as being truly terrible as well. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> everyone should remember Ryan Zicky's terrible. Just because we got rid of the head of the EPA previously does not mean we don't have other problems. We just have a more quiet, terrible person. <laughs> well, Zicky's the head of he, he's the head of uh, the Interior Secretary rather than the EPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the guy, that, the guy that replaced the EPA is also terrible. Oh yes, yes, just definitely. quieter. Yeah, yeah. He at least yeah, exactly. Uh, music, uh, music break. What do you got, Megan? Uncertain roads through small town rundown gas stations and motels. And we are back here listening to the Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, or out in space, or the podcast. Well, the same thing. Yes, exactly. For euphemisms. We just presume that you are in space if you listen to the podcast. You're in a space. That's true. There you go. <laughs> I should sell cars. <laughs> uh, Stefan. Yeah. So we've got uh, we've got three stories uh, to get through. So we're going to the first two pretty quickly, and then we'll get to uh, uh, to a little bit longer one in the end. Um, but I, I briefly mentioned actually this, I think, on last week's show or two weeks ago show about the about the concern about insects in biodiversity loss. And then uh, now I've got a story about it. So, mm. Dave. Insect sperm. Oh, great. Insect sperm. That's a whole, that's a slight twist. Yes. A, uh, another study published this month in Nature Communications reports that uh, male insect fertility is decimated by heat waves, finding that just one heat wave, defined as a period of 5 to 7 degrees Celsius above optimum for five days, reduces sperm in flower beetles by 75%, and a second heat wave in a short time frame will almost entirely sterilize the male population. They also found that the children of the males exposed to heat waves also had lower sperm count as well as shorter lifespans. Females were not affected. 
And on a related note, as The Guardian points out, quote, insect populations are plunging worldwide as temperatures rise, falling by about 80% in 30 years in Puerto Rico's rainforest and by 75% in German nature reserves. The scientists opine that the findings could have some implications for human males, since the average sperm count in us Western men has been cut in half over the past 40 years. Yeah, the man. What's interesting about about this is like the insects are in some way the proverbial canary in the coal mine uh, because they are the bottom of the food chain, and so much eats them Mm. uh, that that I think, and 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 there's so much are unseen. You know, there are so many insects in this world, especially in sort of natural habitats, that they you can lose a whole bunch, and you actually don't know, you don't recognize it. I think, if I remember correctly, from the from the story we covered a while, uh, about the uh, couple couple months ago, I believe, about the European uh, Commission on, on on discovering how much they lost, the main way they could tell was the fewer insects that would hit their windshield as they were driving. That was the that was the way that people noticed. There's like, oh man, way less bugs because less bugs were hitting their windshield, um, and it goes to show you how invisible uh, bugs are able to be in our life while still being again the food source for many like you know that begin to to keep going up. I, I'm going from memory, so this this might be slightly inaccurate, but uh, from memory, I believe that by biomass volume, spiders are the most popular, uh, the the largest life form on Earth. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. Try not to think about it. <laughs> so many spiders. There's at least a million spiders within 50 feet of you. <laughs> and beetles account for the largest uh, amount of species. Right, the different kinds of species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, and this is what biodiversity, in the, I think it speaks in part to our... Uh, disconnection from the natural world. There was a great article in, uh, in the, I believe it was the Narwhal recently about losing about losing our wildness uh, and about how that was about how people didn't fully understand um, that all the progress we experienced was coming at a cost, and the cost was that we did we did no longer experienced so many different wild uh, wild, wild experiences. Mm. You know, like like I think the example that main example they had was was buffalo running across a plain. You know how few people experience that compared to previously, uh, and that speaks to that connection that we've lost. And I think insects are fundamentally the main part of that. Um, there, there are literally tens of thousands of species that were alive when when you and I were young, and people born now will never see. Yeah, exactly. Tens yeah. of thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that twenty-year span. Yeah, and it's you know I think what sixty percent is is are in danger currently, and so like we're we're heading in a dark place, everyone. Uh, but let's keep moving. Uh, we can't. <laughs> We got sargassum. Uh, yeah, so um, huge. He's <laughs> laughing at we're in a dark place. No, uh, what I'm about to say. Oh, great. Huge piles of stinking seaweed are washing up inexplicably on the shores of Caribbean islands. The sargassum collects into clumps out in the oceans, providing habitat and sometimes sustaining whole ecosystems, but it rots and smells of sulfur when it rushes up on land. Massive piles of it are appearing overnight emitting a gas that destroys some electronics, erodes metals, kills sea creatures as large as dolphins, and causes headaches, nausea, and skin irritation in humans. The sargassum is being blamed for destroying a whole generation of young sea creatures in Belize. The cause is not certain, but oceanographers believe that climate change could have an impact by warming the oceans and changing the currents, but there's also the issue of excess fertilizer running off into the oceans from industrial farming operations. Harvesting the seaweed could create products like fertilizers, sunscreen, biofuels, or even food. 
On the 21st and 22nd of November, just these past couple days, Barbados held the second regional sargassum symposium that brings together the Caribbean community to discuss, quote, fisheries and tourism, biodiversity implications, influx management, and innovative uses. Can I, I have a suggestion for how to use this. Uh, weaponize it and send it after oil rigs. <laughs> Just start flowing That's sargassum at it. Halfway through that story, your eyes started to glint. <laughs> now I know why. Yeah. I, the, well, hey, they take out they take electronics? Apparently they destroyed some TVs. I don't really understand. Uh, that is how if if it's corroding metals, right? You know that's true. Yeah. So this so this is the answer. Like, I don't, it's I'm beginning to be concerned. That this is perhaps the beginning of the dolphin warfare. I I, I, I you know I've pre- previously on the show stated that my main concern or my favorite Armageddon is it was jellyfish. A, it was jellyfish yeah. uh, overlord, but uh, jellyfish you know taking over the world because of oceans, which then appears to be only somewhat possible uh, as the caveat is covered later. Um, but uh, but this this idea that dolphins are now going to weaponize sargassum. And Come after oil rigs, touche dolphins. Well, uh, sci-fi I think fans unmet- will recognize "So Long and Thanks for All the Fish" as yes. the farewell from all the dolphins uh, right before the Vorgons destroy Earth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's the same thing, <laughs> except that this time it'll be sargassum will take over the entire oceans and then you know wipe out electronics. So the dolphins will be like peace. So the dolphins, uh, <laughs> they're obviously still working on this technology because it's currently killing them. But as soon as uh, as, soon as, as they, soon as they develop their immunity, boy. We're just gonna see the dolphins are gonna dolphins are gonna get sargassum vests and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be going no, no, around with like a <laughs> and they're just gonna take us all down. I'm just saying this is, this is my concern. Um, well, I, that is the that is the last story that has at least a monochrome of of fun to it. Uh, namely, that our last story. Now, yeah, look at the. I'm Less than a minute ago, you said we're in a dark place, and now you're saying, buckle up, we're getting into good stuff. <laughs> that is true, that is true, but I think our listeners will agree that the last story we have uh, is, uh, is, is truly uh, actually just uh, a, an exclusively sad and in no parts funny story. Yes, um, in January of this year, <clears throat> eight members of the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation were arrested in Tehran uh, by the intelligence arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, a branch of the Iranian military. They were originally detained on charges of espionage and using their environmental projects as a cover to get at classified information, specifically using the pretext of surveying endangered animals to spy in strategic areas where they would plant cameras to collect soil to identify the areas for missile tests, uh, used for missile tests by the Iranian military. No evidence, however, has been provided for this accusation. They have been kept in detention without clear charges for the nine months following, and now five of them have been charged with what is called sowing corruption on earth, which could be punished by death. One of the activists, however, the foundation's founder, Kavu Sayed Amami, a prominent Iranian environmentalist, professor, and dual Canadian citizen, already died in custody only two weeks after being detained in a high-security prison, which authorities claimed was a suicide. They failed to carry out an impartial investigation, however, and subsequently placed his wife, who is also a dual Canadian citizen, under a travel ban. UN human rights experts have said of Saeed Imami's death, quote, not only was he arrested on flimsy charges, but his death in custody strongly suggests foul play. Of the arrests in general, they stated, quote, we are concerned that Iranian authorities now seem to be arresting and investigating peaceful scientific activists for their invaluable conservationist work. It is hard to fathom how working to preserve the Iranian flora and fauna can possibly be linked to conducting espionage against Iranian interests. 
Human Rights Watch reports, quote, As a result of climate change affecting the Middle East and the Iranian government's mismanagement, Iran is facing a potential environmental crisis, particularly a water shortage. The security apparatus's long-held wariness of international cooperation and fear of independent activism have led it to crack down on the people who are trying to help address the problems. Iran is currently facing a water crisis during its worst drought in modern times, which even beyond a chronic water shortage is being called a drought epidemic. The country also faces land degradation, air pollution, wildlife loss, and increasing sand and dust storms. Yet in the midst of this, Iranian authorities appear to be criminalizing environmental activism and have also effectively exiled the deputy head of their Department of Environment. The head of that department has said that there is no evidence against the detainees, and so has the president, Hassan Rouhani. The president, however, is opposed by Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, who holds ultimate veto power over the goings-on of government. Over 1,100 Iranian activists have now signed a letter to the judiciary demanding the swift resolution of the case. So there is, I think what, what, what strikes me about, about the story, A, is of course that environmental activism it remains an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Uh, in in the world, especially if you're indigenous, uh, especially if you're indigenous, yes, uh, and and that's a good segue because this, this, the second thing that that comes to my mind is what is what is difficult for uh, I think for for the Western world to fully understand um, and difficult for for us to, to really to really realize is that the there's no there doesn't get to be any moral superiority about this uh, from from this side of the world. Uh, because we are consistently, ongoingly criminalizing environmental activism ourselves, and and the the idea that 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 these that these that these five these five environmentalists um, are you know, obviously I think I think the idea that that they might be charged with with death and that one has died in in, uh, in custody that is maybe a little more extreme uh, than what we see often in, in, in say Canada, United States. Uh, however, I don't think it is, it is functionally not that different. Uh, you know, the, the fact, you know, we covered a story again about, about a, a couple months ago about how heavy handed the American government is being, uh, in regards to the standing rock protesters. And I was, I was just going to say, we talked about a couple of times, the Republican politicians trying to legalize, uh, essentially killing protesters with your car because you have, if they're in the street, it's not your fault. So, I mean, how is that different? That's really, you know, the, the Republican politicians trying to make it legal to run over protesters. Is that really that different than the government abducting them and killing them in prison? Right. Like it's, it's different, it is different, but how yes. different? Well, well and, and, and this is the, and this is, is this is the thing, right? Is that there is the, like the fact that speaking truth to power is dangerous has never been, uh, is not a new revelation. Um, and, and I think what's interesting about this particular case is that I think these, these individuals were, were in their minds conducting what was really just studies about a space rather than sort of, you know, actively trying to protest the government. Um, and I think that is sort of a, a one step further than we want to do, but still like, I don't think, you know, you don't get to be like it, all the all the supreme leader would need to do to sort of justify this action uh, to um, to 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 the Iranian people is to sort of point at the response the American government had for the protests at Standing Rock. 
right? The protesters in Iraq dealt with the fact that the FBI in, basically tried to infiltrate and did infiltrate their ranks. Uh, they responded incredibly militaristically, and now they're using the fact that the, they can't that the fact that North Dakota courts will be entirely on on representative of the people who are being who are being tried as a way to force them into uh, into accepting plea deals of five ten uh, you know five ten years of of of, of prison. Canadian in Canada, CSIS, uh, being used to spy uh, in partnership with oil companies on peaceful protesters and activist groups. Yeah, and and I and I certainly think that that if you want to see the 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 biggest the biggest concern, one of the bigger concerns I have uh, in Canada is is what happens if and when the the Canadian government decides to try to force the 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 pipeline, uh, the Transband pipeline, like. You want to see if a conservative government is in in power when they try to force the transmand pipeline. They, I I am truly fearful of of the of the of the of the path that we would end up on. Uh, I think I I hope and maybe I'm wrong about this too. Maybe maybe I'm, this is a, this is a delusion that I'm currently experiencing that I don't think the Liberal Party would go as far as to send troops on the ground to do this. Um, and and that is sort of me to the line where I'd be sort of like. That to me is the line where you're in truly dangerous territory, uh, but but the fact that 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 being an environmentalist anywhere in the world uh, comes with the potential of being locked up by your own government for simply pointing out how bad things are what their things are going to be is a is a worldwide problem um, and and a truly dangerous proposition. And so I think that everyone who's working on this sort of thing needs to. Be needs to take care of each other, uh, and so I think we, as the environmentalist movement uh, in, in in anywhere, need to find any cases like this and and rally around where we can. Um, well, and, and, and the reason yeah. why, sorry, uh, sorry no, to cut you off, but just, I think this is really important to hammer down because we say this thing, but we don't ex- we don't explain it. I, I like to make, just make sure everyone's on the same page here, right? The reason why being an environmentalist is dangerous is because personal individual problems are not what's destroying Earth, right? It's power. That is destroying Earth. Mega corporations, multinational corporations, governments—these uh, are the things, right? So, the 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 only people that are doing things that need to be resisted are the most powerful figures in society, right? So, if you you know, just because often like people, there there, I have noticed it as well in my interpersonal life uh, that sometimes people sort of view like if you're if you're not a company, you're just a regular citizen. You don't add, you don't have any label you put on yourself, and you meet someone sort of being an environmentalist almost has like, I, and this is just what I've experienced, but almost like a cute connotation, like oh good right. for you. Um, but yeah, but people want us freaking dead. Um, and that's not an exaggeration and it is quite dangerous. And the, and the more you try and change and the more change you try and make, the more dangerous it becomes. So, I mean, if there, if there can be a sort of a a quick message for our sort of non-activist, but interested listeners out there, um, stop doing that, uh, (laughs) is extremely irritating. Don't, don't give us the whole, Oh, that's cute. Uh, we're fighting to save you and your kids' lives and it's dangerous. And you can support us, uh, but please don't patronize. Yes. Uh, and on that very pleasant note, uh, that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, we, we'll be back next week with more great news. Yeah, pre-records over the holidays. Pre-records are always more uplifting. Yes. Because they're less uh, topical. So uplifting shows over the holidays coming soon. Yes.